Welcome to the GPPR podcast. My name is Justin Goss. I am the editor-in-chief of the Georgetown Public Policy Review, joined as always by my silent partner, senior interview editor, Kevin Barslow. And today we have the pleasure of being joined by geopolitics fellow extraordinaire, Jen Saki. Hello. Hi, it's great to be here. Thanks for- My, my only demand is I think Kevin should get to speak. That's, you started demand campaign. So 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 absolutely. <laughs> totally, we we're totally responsive to change.org petitions or whatever you whatever medium you want to use. But that's actually not my choice. That's Ke- that's oh, Kevin's choice most of the time. Let Kevin speak. <laughs> Get the movement going. Anyway, on to more serious matters. It's I think I think, Ke- I think Kevin's voice and autonomy is absolutely a serious matter that maybe we should uh, address on a different podcast. <laughs> um, but let but let's let's talk about what you've been up to on the whole top uh, more recently. So. Um, our, our theme for this year's spring edition is disruption, which we've been publicizing like crazy. Um, and it seems to match up relatively well with your discussion group, especially the first couple of sessions um, where you're talking about what's changed in terms of how people consume their information. How, how was that first discussion and what topics did you cover? So um, one, I think it's important to note, well, this is a great focus you guys have, because I would say this period is all about disruption. Nobody knows the answers to a lot of the questions that any of the fellows are posing. And that's why it's such an interesting time to be having these discussions. Um, In our first discussion group, we talked about everything from the misconceptions about how people consume information to the realities of... um, uh, of you know some mediums which uh, you know you may think as a college student or a graduate student are totally outdated like television Never but actually it. television <laughs> uh, a huge pot percentage of the population it leans older still consumes information from television and um, we talked about the lean of different outlets and how there has been a range of charts and analysis by media critics about uh, the quality of journalism from certain outlets and how they lean and whether we agreed or disagreed with that and how this impacted the 2016 election. So it was a wide ranging discussion. People had lots of good ideas. Uh, I hope a lot of these people come back because I learned a lot from the from the discussion myself. No, way to slide that plug right in there for for the next twelve session. to one thirty on Friday. Come on down. Here to help. Free um, pizza <laughs> every every week. If people want pizza, we do what the people want. All right, all right. Ke- Kevin speaking and, and, fr- and free pizza. That's, exactly. that's the two guarantees out of this podcast so far. Um, what what were some of the some of those uh, misconceptions? I'm, I'm guessing uh, you alluded to. Um, undergraduates maybe priced television consumption a little bit lower or a lot lower perhaps uh, than where it actually is. Were there misconceptions about uh, slant or uh, which leanings of different outlets? There was a discussion about it and um, it was interesting um, to look at, we looked at a chart that had been in the Washington Post last week and we used it as not uh, the law, but as a point of discussion. So, um, you know, is I, I remember it struck a number of people that um, the Washington Post itself was in there as not as conservative leaning as I think uh, most people would feel they are. Um, that there were a number of outlets that were um, uh, ranked higher in quality than a lot of us who were in the room last week would have agreed they were. So Hmm. we had a discussion about that. But looking at the chart, 
um, was just a reminder of one, how many outlets there are, but also how this is something that society is evaluating right now and not in as present and thoughtful in, in a manner as we probably were in that discussion group. But um, it was it was a really interesting discussion. Could not set, have set me up better for my next question. So thank you for that wonderful segue. Sure. Um, so in terms of the variety of communications, mm -hmm. so you, uh, one, one of the many things that you've done uh, off the hilltop is that you worked in, you headed up communications in large part mm -hmm. for the last administration, the Obama White House. Yeah. Um, so how has, how has the way that the president communicates with the electorate and the public changed over time? You know, like Teddy Roosevelt famously coined the idea of the bully pulpit, mm -hmm. uh, FDR um, went ahead with the fireside chats, which are yeah. still historically famous in terms of presidential communications of trying to connect directly to the voter. Um, but with the Obama White House, there were there were some brand new things. You talked about it in, in, the, in the last podcast that you uh, shared with us. Um, that you referred to it as new media at the time. How has that paradigm shifted and what are some new, new ways that presidents are finding to communicate with the electorate? Well, um, sorry, uh, Roosevelt, the bully pulpit is dead. Maybe. <laughs> um, you know, I think uh, the big change that happened during the Obama administration was the explosion of online media and social media platforms that began to serve as media platforms as well. And that's its own separate category of questions we could discuss. Um, and really what we experimented with, but it took us through eight years really to get a lot of this right, was how to meet people where they are, which is how are people consuming information? Should we just assume that the president of the United States will get up, deliver a speech and everybody will hear it? That's not how it works anymore. Um, as we're talking on a podcast, right? Uh, and so we experimented a lot with different, more alternative, more creative, out-of-the-box interview styles and interview outlets. This was pretty controversial at times um, and angered a lot of them in the mainstream media quite a bit. So um, it wasn't all smooth sailing. Um, but, you know, we expanded and did things like podcasts with the president. We did long form conversations where he would interview um, an author or an expert on an issue. Um, we did um, uh, Bear Grylls in Alaska. Um, we did Zach Galifianakis, which everybody talks up. about. So, um, but, you know, for, for us, there was always an objective. It wasn't just to, to do the things that had the biggest shock and awe. It was to do the outlets and interviews where it provided a format that worked for the president. And for him, that was long form discussions about oftentimes single topic issues mm -hmm. um, or and both of them, hopefully, it was to reach people who weren't maybe tuning in and clicking refresh on Politico or the Washington Post every day and expanding our audience. What do you mean when you say the bully pulpit is dead? Oh, you, you didn't forget I said that. Um, <laughs> I'm just kidding. Um, what I mean is that um, uh, back in the day, which isn't that long ago, 25 years ago, maybe 20 years ago, before cable news, before Twitter, before Facebook, uh, before podcasts, where there was three nightly newscasts, 
your local newspaper, a handful of national dailies, there was such a small number of outlets to communicate through. Mm -hmm. And all of those outlets committed resources um, to covering the president of the United States because, you know, that's what sold newspapers. And because of the expansion and explosion of news outlets and options, um, you know, no longer is that how it works. Um, and it hasn't for some time. And it, even in the beginning of the Obama administration, we assumed that if the president of the United States went to Michigan and toured an auto plant and gave remarks, then everybody would hear it. That wasn't the reality then, and it's certainly not the reality now. So it's also about how you use your time, and nothing's more valuable than the time of the president or high-level officials. Even in terms of the most recent campaign, uh, the current president was worried uh, that that uh, one of the debates would be upstaged by Monday Night Football, I think, I sure. think, I think one evening. So, yeah, point, point well taken. Um, the Obama White House was also well known uh, as one of the first administrations to make extensive use of data and big data in its policy making. Mm -hmm. But did the administration also make a point of using data to better specify its communications and messaging? Yes, um, especially in the final two years. And we used it to think very specifically about which platform reached which audiences and how to, and what issues even. So for example, criminal justice reform and education policies played well on Facebook. So when we were in, when we would announce um, a, com a set of commutations, oftentimes we would mm -hmm. do that in a video on Facebook. Um, and it, when, I'm, when I mean play well, I don't mean people saying approve, approve. I mean sharing it, right? right? Um, mm -hmm. So, um, you know, we thought a lot about that. We tried to use data to evaluate how even events played. It was harder to do that. Our technology just wasn't up to speed in the White House at the time. I'm sure it will get up to speed should people choose to use that in the future. Uh, I do think looking back in 2016 on the election that data was used too much um, mm. in that case by the Clinton campaign in media to reach specific audiences. And what was lost was an overarching um, message of how they were fighting for average people and why she wanted to run for president. And so, you know, they were very effective at reaching the disability community, Latinos for Clinton, you know, very specific audiences through different channels. Uh, but sometimes it can become too segmented, and I think it's a lesson that you always have to start with what you are trying to say and not just who you're trying to reach. Mm. So that's that's interesting just because I think I think most people would, would agree that they want policymakers, when, when you're actually governing, yeah. to use data to inform policy. It's like, do you want to have more information or mm. less when you're trying to make a good policy? Yeah. I, think, I think most people would say you'd rather have more. Um, but then there has been this criticism that you brought up that the there was an overemphasis on data during the campaign. Um, and so you just you said that the Clinton campaign was a little bit overly segmented to the point that she moved away from her broader message. What like so what you so you're you're an expert on both of these issues because you worked within the administration and then also worked on uh, President Obama's reelection campaign. 
what what's the difference between how data is utilized when you're governing versus running for office? So when you're running for office, you're trying to get 50 plus one percentage of the vote, right? Hopefully more than that. Sure. And um, it depends on the election year, but most of the time that means turning out your base voters. It means maybe expanding the electorate into your voters. And so for us in 2008 and 2012, that was turning out more in the people in the African-American community, young people, than had typically voted, right? Mm -hmm. So when you're using data, you're trying to reach an appeal to that segment of the population. I would say in governing, what's different is it depends on what you're trying to pass and who you're trying to move. And sometimes it's as targeted as specific states where you're trying to move specific members of Congress. Mm. Um, sometimes to make them feel the pain if they vote the wrong way, as mm. we like to say. Um, sometimes it is um, not just working with your base, but trying to appeal to independence. You know, when President was advocate Obama was advocating for uh, trade and TPA, that was not a democratic stalt far, far from it. Most of our opponents were in the Democratic Party. So with that, we were looking to appeal to small business owners, a slightly different version. So you think about it in, in a you think about it in a targeted way as to who you're trying to reach to kind of move your objective forward. You're winning an election, you're trying to get a vote passed, you're trying to influence senators. It, it's different each time. Uh, but so in ter in terms of the in terms of campaigning with data, mm -hmm. the Obama campaign, everybody was thrilled and enthused about the way that uh, Obama used data to reach out to voters or tar know how to reach out to voters in in both of his campaigns, specific specifically the re-election campaign. Um, and everybody, every you know, the republic the Republicans uh, mm -hmm. tried to mirror that uh, first first with Mitt Romney, um, and then you know we we had uh, Donald Trump on the campaign trail actually like citing polls. Um, and it's a, it's a little bit more opaque in terms of to what to what degree his campaign made use of data. Um, but Hillary Clinton's campaign, like you said, absolutely. They didn't do it on purpose. Which which part? The the Trump campaign. Right. They, right. I mean. Their data polling, I mean, I don't even know how often they polled, mm -hmm. but, and that's different data, right, than data to target his supporters, right? right? Anyway, continue. Right, more, right, more so, more so to re reinforce support yeah. rather, rather than actually yeah. know, know which voters to reach yeah. out to in the case of the Trump sure. campaign. But, um, but so, you know, 538 likes to play the game, good use of polling, bad use of polling. So, like, was the Obama's was Obama's re-election campaign good use of campaign data and Hillary Clinton's election or campaign bad use of election data or what 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 changed in between the two in terms of how they tried to target voters with with data? Well, um, I think what I was getting at before is there was never a question as to why Barack Obama was running for president and sure. who he wanted to represent if he was elected. Um, anyone who has spent time with Hillary Clinton, who supports her and worked for her, and I didn't have not had a huge amount of interaction with her, but I can absolutely see how this is true, would tell you that in a room there's no one better. I have no doubt about that. 
But that's not something people saw. And mm. the reason this is important is because how Obama used data was to engage people who already were were interested in what he had to say. There was already kind of an appeal, and how and and the use of data when it's effectively used is to engage people and make them a part of the process. So in two thousand eight, it was used to um, we had MyBo, my Barack Obama, which was mm. uh, people could sign up. I know it sounds like I'm talking about a record player, but. Um, People could sign up. They could it sounds like a Fitbit or something. Or like, something. Like, I, want, I want a MyVo. <laughs> right. Exactly. Um, people could um, download a um, a organizing packet. They would meet with their neighbors. So it was really putting power in the hands of individuals. Um, I think that was definitely used on the Clinton campaign as well. Mm-hmm. But some of it some of what i've heard from people which i agree with is that some of the use of it wasn't didn't come across as authentic right and so it didn't people weren't as bought in um but that's basically what i saw as to the difference got it and that and that's interesting interesting you point to that because that was one of the uh, that was that was the dichotomy that kept coming up during the campaign was that in a room away away from these you know giant yep. crowds and the cameras she's amazing and super accessible yeah. but for whatever reason that's just not coming through and it's and it's interesting to the, the point that data might have actually uh, overly segmented the message and made it so targeted that that the broader broader message of the communication that was trying to take place during that campaign got so diluted Right. Look, Democrats lost the thread on communicating with people in the country about who the fact that we were fighting for them. Donald Trump captured that. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I'm a Democrat, so I believe pretty strongly that he doesn't have a better plan, but it doesn't matter once people vote and they make their own decision. There were so many factors in the election, though, that it's hard to kind of pinpoint, sure. but that's a reality. And look, there's a DNC race this weekend, right? I mean, only it's, you know, less than 500 people get to vote who the DNC chair is. But there's been a lot of interesting debates raised through that about the future of the party. And mm-hmm. is it 50 state or not? Which goes to kind of the data-driven questions. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And uh, and a little bit for, further down the line, but still in the near future, there's a few uh, special house elections coming yep. up. So, that's, so we're going to immediately uh, have that See. put right back to the test. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so you've moved, moving away from, uh, broad, broader communications. You've also worked in speech writing. Well, I have not been a speech writer myself. Right. Um, but I've worked a lot with speech writers as right. part of communications. Yeah. Sorry. Yeah. Should, My sister's should. married to an Obama speech writer. Really? So, yeah. Love in the Obama White House. Anyone we would have heard of? Adam Frankel. Um, he helped um, Ted Sorensen write his book, who was Kennedy's speechwriter, mm-hmm. right? And Patrick Murphy write his book. But, oh wow! Yeah, smart guy. Great. Okay, so so you so you've uh, man you've worked with and managed speechwriters. Yes. Yes. Okay. Yes. Um, yes. Hard job. Oh, I, I'll, I'll, I'll bet I'll bet us. Uh, not my, not that my part of the job, their job. Yes. <laughs> um. So, um. Have we have we gotten to the point where data uh, could even be used to better specify uh, speeches based on, based on the audience? Uh, 
I would say when it's when you try too hard to use polling language, which is how, how data would be used, mm -hmm. you can hear that and tell that in speeches. Interesting. Because mm -hmm. it doesn't sound like the person talking. It okay. sounds like a poll tested line. Um, so I think you actually have to be pretty careful about that. Mm -hmm. Interesting. So so you think so you think trying to the the theme the theme I'm getting is that communication sculpted too much by data, especially something a little bit more artful or organic like speech writing, it, it sort of loses some of the authenticity. Yeah. Um, when it's overly specified by analytics. Yes. Interesting. Yes. In terms of how you're messaging, mm -hmm. it it should be a guide, but ultimately why somebody's running for office mm -hmm. and you know who they want to represent who they want to stand up for needs to come from them um right. and it can't come from what data and polling tells you so cody keenan who is the head of speech writing um he's coming here next week um you're, i think they've announced that if not you're hearing it here first Ooh. um Jeep not not to my dis not to my discussion group um he's coming to like a larger event Got that it. they'll announce but anyway um, he said to me once, you never want to write a speech around one line. Mm -hmm. You may have a great line in your head about healthcare that's so quotable, mm -hmm. but you don't want to do that. That is true of how Obama speechwriters approach speechwriting. Mm -hmm. I'm sure there are people who disagree with that. And there aren't a lot of Obama lines that people say, oh, that line, that will go down in history. Right. Um, because that's not how... Uh, he kind of would would you know p turn away from that. Right. There was that there was that uh, State of the Union. I forget exactly which year where the uh, refrain throughout was out written. educate out innovate that one. Oh, I was gonna say no. win the future. Oh, win the future. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And that that didn't that didn't play especially no. well. The pen um, and phone that wasn't a good one either. That's, mm -hmm. that's right. <laughs> yeah. So so it's so it's almost like it's almost like when you're so excited to get to the punchline of a joke and then you like really hold it out. There and then for you people. get there and people don't totally get yeah, it. Right. Yeah. So you don't want to do that. Okay. That's not enough. the goal of speech writing. Now now I think we don't have time for this today, but I think we should play a game where we try to like redo famous presidential quotes as the but have them be overly targeted as though we're using data. Can you tell? <laughs> <laughs> um, we'll get we'll get you out of here on this. <laughs> sure. Um, so go, going forward in your discussion group, one, uh, one of the topics is the dark side of social media. Yeah. I think that's actually the name of one of the discussion yeah. topics. Um, and I, I think there's a lot of truth and resonance to that because there's been some social science research that has shown that as communities become more digitally connected, uh, political polarization within those communities actually increases. Mm -hmm perhaps due to uh, the dreaded social media echo chamber effect. Um, do you have any thoughts on how social media can be used for good in terms of resolving political differences rather than exacerbating them like we're seeing today? Sure. So I think social media can give people in the country access to their elected officials and a, and a way to engage with their elected officials and with debates and discussions. And it is incumbent upon the elected officials to figure out how to do that effectively. I would say the vast majority have not. That that what they do, and just to go back to one of our themes here, is they tweet things that are fact sheets or, again, data, and it's just not authentic because it's not in their voice and it doesn't make people want to engage with them. But I, what I also will say about the dark side is a big part of the dark side of social media is also in the international arena. And so that's a big part of what we'll be talking about, talking to you SFS students out there. Um, so Friday, we're going to talk about ISIL and how ISIL use 
uh, has very effectively now, fortunately we've beat them back a bit, but, um, use Twitter and social media, many, many different apps to recruit online. And what does that say? And what does that mean? That's a very dark side of this, perhaps even darker than political polarization. Um, and it really poses a big challenge for a lot of social mm. media companies. Interesting. So, so actual nefarious uses of, because of social media, because there has been there has been a comment that Mark Zuckerberg's not really running a social network anymore. He's running a media site. Mm -hmm. um, this is a big debate. Yes. It's, it's a big discussion, as as you've seen, as he's addressed, and they stumbled over their response in the beginning. But when you have about fifty percent of the population consuming news about the election on Facebook, how can they not be a media site? Mm -hmm. They have recognized, I think, they have to be a media site. The challenge they're grappling with is what is their editorial responsibility, right. which I don't think is an easy question. Right. And that's one of the things we'll be discussing um, over the course of the next few weeks as well. Right. It's a whole whole new paradigm. Oh, did, did, did Kevin, does Kevin want to say something? No, it is. It's an interesting. Let Kevin speak. It happened. <laughs> It, it, is an, it is an interesting debate, you know, how much is curation actually content creation? Mm -hmm. um, are you in the discussion group also going to be talking about, um, I, I forget where they're based, but there are um, sites where people get paid to make, like, fake internet profiles and comment on political Yeah, stories. so the, our last discussion group, and some of this is going to change as the semester goes on. I mean, for example, next Monday we're going to talk really just about the joint session speech and how you can use social media around that. That's a sort of a change. But um, but we want to talk, one of them, the last one I think is going to be about the lower barrier to entry, right? Which mm -hmm. is just a really interesting question happening right now because why is it that some guy, I'll just be a little sexist against men here, uh, in his <laughs> sweatpants in Eastern Europe is, you know, able to create a false, news story and it gets spread like wildfire including on right-wing sites in the united states how is that okay what are we doing about that i don't know if you're referring to just like a generic idea but i mean that actually fits the mold of the whole like california exit movement that, yeah that's i believe going on yeah. the california ballot next election cycle see so, yeah, there you go so, there there are actual examples that are very similar to what i've just mentioned um but but yes i mean so that's an interesting question. Who has responsibility there? Is it the consumer of information? Is it media sites? Is it social media platforms? Is it all of us? I don't know the answer, but um, that's why it's you know about disruption. Just to circle back. Absolutely. Thank you. Thank, thank you. <laughs> this uh, this uh, symbiotic relationship of, pl of plugging we have going on. All right. Well, Jen Saki, thank you so My much pleasure. for spending time with us. This has been great. Good luck uh, in your discussion group for the rest of the semester. And listeners, as a famous American president once said, there is nothing to fear but post-recessionary inflation itself. Thank you, everybody. Poll tested or not. Poll tested. <laughs> <laughs>